welcome to the Sacred City Life Podcast. This is your host, Pastor Justin Dean. And today, joining me on the podcast is... Alex Tate, um, Sacred City Youth Director and also a uh, pastoral resident. And Brasson Amix, pastoral resident. Boom. So we've got a couple of the residents joining me today on the podcast. And what we're going to do, we're doing something a little different. We're going to start a new segment on the podcast. This podcast is to help... Um, everyday people follow Jesus in the normal rhythms of their life. That's what it's about. And so um, we're going to start a new segment, and we're just going to call it Theology for Everyone. And what we're going to do is the podcast, it's my hope that we start putting um, podcasts out on a more regular basis. I'm trying to try to do one, one per week, and every other week, basically, release a Theology for Everyone podcast. And what we're going to be doing on the Theology for Everyone podcast, is we're going to be um, working our way through the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter by chapter, article by article. Now, if you're not familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith, I'm not going to give a full introduction on it here. That would be um, beyond the scope of what I want to do on the podcast, and it would get us into all kind of uh, nerd debates that are fun if you're in seminary, but uh, nobody really cares about it if you're not. And so basically... The Westminster Confession of Faith was formed in the 17th century, and it, it is one of the clearest, most succinct, and most historically recognized, historically approved, historically practiced conf, uh, biblical confession of faith that's ever been created. Now, what is a confession of faith? A confession of faith, so at Sacred City, we have preached through... Um, the Lord's Prayer, we have preached through the Ten Commandments, and we have preached through um, the Apostles' Creed. Um, and those are usually the foundations for any catechism that's been used. Um, but the, uh, the Confession of Faith goes a little bit beyond those things and tries to create a mini systematic theology. So if you're familiar with what systematic theology is, systematic theology is trying to take the themes of Scripture or the teachings of Scripture and... Um, distill them down to key doctrines, key beliefs. What, is this, what does the Scripture say about election? What does the Scripture say about faith? What are the, and, and, and instead of uh, like a biblical theology, what traces the narrative arc through Scripture and traces something from the very beginning to the end, systematic pulls out the Scriptures that all deal with you know, faith and then creates a doctrine on faith. And so when you're working with systematic theology, it is the work of men, uh, the Westminster Confession was created by what they called divines. So these men, who most of them pastors, theologians, could read the original languages, they came together to distill the scriptures down to something a little more clear than the Apostles' Creed. They wanted to get a little, uh, a little more nuance. They wanted to provide more structure to that. They wanted to build it out. But today, if you go and get a systematic theology from like Wayne Grudem or Louis Burkhoff, you're going to see this book is going to be like a thousand pages. And so they didn't want that to go that extensive, but they wanted to provide the working man, the everyday man, the every woman, um, the opportunity to learn systematic theology, to be able to, and then out of this systematic theology, out of this confession of faith, then they have a catechism, a longer catechism and a shorter catechism. So what we're going to do is we're going to work uh, section by section through the catechism. We are doing this in the fashion of kind of a fight club type of thing. So 
we are enjoying ourselves. We we've got something nice to drink. We've got a we got cigars here, and we're just gonna read it. We're gonna read the confession, and then we'll go back and we're gonna break it apart section by section, and and um, and then we'll look at the scripture proofs, ask questions, and just kind of chop it up. That's the goal of the podcast today, and that's the goal that we'll be we'll be uh, putting these out. So, without further ado. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 1, um, Section 1, or se- Chapter 1, Article 1. Um, Bryson, why don't you go ahead and read that for us? Okay. <clears throat> Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church, and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. Okay. So that is chapter one, article one. It's of the Holy Scripture. So first thing we want to notice is the Westminster divines. They wanted to start out with a doctrine of Scripture. They wanted to say, what is Scripture? And the way that they do that is the first section of this first article says, I'm going to read it again, just the first section. Although... The light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable. Okay, pause right there. When he says the light of nature, he's talking about what other theologians have called natural revelation or natural law, that God has revealed himself in two very specific ways to mankind, all mankind, no matter where they're from. One, by an inward um, illumination, let's say, maybe that's not the right word. Inwardly, um, so in a, uh, theologians talk about an immediate revelation and immediate revelation. And the immediate, the immediate revelation or immediate um, revelation of nature means... Every human being is born with a divine sense, is how John Calvin said it. They're they're born believing in God. Everyone knows inwardly that there is a God, that there is a moral nature to the universe, um, and that's that's indwelt in them at birth. And then secondly, there's um, immediate revelation, which is through a medium, through the creation, so the light of nature uh, and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God. So they're saying, as we'll see in the scriptures, you can look at nature and you can defer things. We all know you ask a kid, or, you know, where does that come from? Or you, a kid says, where does this come from? Where does that come from? Where does that come from? That's just born in human beings. So when you look at creation, you would say, where does that come from? Where does that come from? Where does that come from? And you're going to get back to a first cause an uncreated creator. And so nature 
speaks. So there's a way that God has revealed himself. There's a book that God has written called Nature that reveals himself to human beings through the sun, through, the, through all of creation, right? And so right away they're saying there is such a thing as the light of nature and the works of creation and providence that tell people of God. So there's an inward sense that God is real and I owe him my allegiance and my, I owe him my worship and then there's an outward story of, of creation. But here's what, here's what they say. Yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. So that's saying, though we know inwardly that there is a God, we can never come to know God in a, in a salvific way. We can never be saved by God through that inward knowledge. Nor could we look at creation and come to salvation. Right? Now, why do you think that's the case? Uh, well, even thinking through, so uh, in my class on C.S. Lewis, it seems like this is something that was really like important uh, in the conversion of Lewis, was like the moral law kind of being natural in his heart, like that natural, the mm -hmm. light of nature mm -hmm. he was talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and so thinking through like Lewis's conversion, it was always like there's this definite, we know what's right and we know what's wrong and there's not an explanation for it. Where uh, does that come from? Yeah. yeah. Um, so as he traced that, he traced that back to a God. Um, because any other starting point of morality would be completely subjective. Yeah. So if it, if it, if it begins in man, if morality is just in man and man is the end-all, be-all, then who's to say Hitler's morality is any more moral than right. our morality? Yeah. Right? But if there really is a sense of morality or absolute truth, then that the source of that morality or absolute truth would therefore be God. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, even even thinking through, like, I guess what Scripture says, like that moral law, that, that, that nature that's already written on us, that only condemns us. That doesn't provide any salvation at all. And so if you're only working with the moral law, that's damning. Mm -hmm. So, just thinking through it like that, like that's why it's insufficient for the knowledge of God and salvation, or at least that aspect of it, yeah. because it only condemns. Right. It tells you murder is wrong and lust is wrong and and envy is wrong and stealing is wrong, but and lying is wrong, but we've lied, and so therefore, how could I find salvation? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts, Alex? Looks like you guys wrapped it up. <laughs> so, let's go to a couple scriptures on this. Um, you want to start us out, Bryson, in yeah. Romans... Where are we, we going to start? Romans chapter 1 or Romans, Romans chapter 2? Romans 1 and then verse 19. Okay. Uh, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And then verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Yeah. So right there we see the immediate revelation of God to all people. Doesn't He doesn't reveal himself in this way just to Christians. He reveals his eternal power to everyone that walks this planet. 
They can look at the sun. They can look at the laws of nature. And laws don't come out of accident, right? Mm -hmm. Laws don't come out of just... Laws are given by a lawgiver, right? Laws are created by someone that has a sentient being, right? And so the laws of nature speak that there's a creator or a lawgiver. And the moral laws, that there's a moral lawgiver. And the eternal qualities that we see in the nature of power and all this stuff speak of a powerful creator. And he says there, so they are without excuse. They're without excuse. And that's exactly where they get the, the Westminster divines get this language that as to leave men unexcusable. So no man can say, as some atheists like to say, not enough evidence, not enough evidence. No, in fact, there is plenty of evidence. You're just suppressing that evidence for, um, other reasons, Alex. What did I, I you just have? like that, yeah. I just feel like that was good because a lot of times, um, as pastors, do so much work behind the scenes, doing research and reading books, and uh, just kind of just building up um, God's kingdom. Where a lot of people trust what that what the pastor is saying, but also as men, we should not have excuse where we should be going to the scriptures ourselves and doing that research um, and just seeing what God has to say in in the text. Sure. So, yep. Good. Yep. And, and even with, uh, I know a lot of people, uh, especially outside of like a Reformed tradition, will look at things like unreached people groups and claim like, how is it just of God to condemn someone that's been unreached to hell? But the scriptures clearly teach that even without them being reached, they're still without excuse because right. of the natural revelation of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. Alex, you got Romans chapter 2, 14, 15? Yes. Let's do that. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do have the law... Do not. Uh, do not have the law. By nature, do what the law requires. They are the law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the works of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bear witness and... Their conflicting thoughts excuse or even excuse them. Accuse or Accu- even excuse them, yeah. On the day of when, according to the to my gospel, God judges the secret of men by Christ. So this is the immediate knowledge of God written on the hearts of men, that all men have a moral law written in them, mm-hmm. and they know, they have an innate sense. There, they, there might be you know, blind and fumbling around in the dark, but they have an, they have an innate sense of what is moral and what is immoral. And when they work, when they, um, when they, when they live in obedience to their conscience or in line with their conscience, they are a law to themselves. He says, um, even though they do not have the law, then they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So click conflict. I know something's right and I don't do it because I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And then so I'm under, I'm judging myself basically. I'm under mm-hmm. the judgment of myself because I say something is right and I do it. I uh, do what um, I believe is wrong. And then we can go to Romans chapter two, verses one. He says, um, Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to go to 132 first. 
Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So here, how many times, I've, I've, you know, we, we, we know something's wrong, we say something's wrong, and then and we judge other people for doing something that's wrong, but then we do the very same thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we are inexcusable. We are without excuse. We cannot we we know there's a morality. Even philosophers that claim that there is no morality, they'll they say things are immoral. They break their own standard all the time. And so you can say there is no God, you can say morality is all relative, and then you and then you ask them if, if rape is wrong, and they're gonna say, Of course rape is wrong. And we'd say, by what standard, yeah. right? Because they can't get around it. They have God's law written in their heart. And therefore, at the judgment seat of God, they will be without excuse because they are violating the inward um, natural law, moral law that God's putting in them. And they're um, r- suppressing the truth because they don't want um, there to be a God. Okay, so that's, that's the first section. It talks about the light of nature. And the light of nature and natural revelation and the moral law and the natural law, um, it is it speaks of God. It reveals God in a sense, but it reveals Him in a very fuzzy fashion. You don't get the clarity. You don't get to see like we already talked about the graciousness of God. How do you get? How do you find salvation? It doesn't say anything about Jesus, His perfect Son. It doesn't say anything about the Trinity. So what does He say? The divine said this. Therefore, it pleased the Lord. At sundry times and in diverse manners, so at different times and in all kinds of different manners, to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. So God has revealed himself in a specific or special way at different times, diverse manners, to declare his will unto his church. So the people of God. Um, before I go on, let's just, well, let's, let's, I'll just keep going. Up. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan, and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing. Okay. Here he's saying what we, so first we talked about natural revelation. Now we're talking about special revelation. God revealed himself in a diverse ways. He revealed himself through appearing to Abraham, Moses, right? right? Speaking through the prophets of the Old Testament, committing people, telling people then to take that revelation and put it into writing um, so that we would have that. And he, would, he did that for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. All right? Most necessary. Let's go to Romans 15.4 first. I think I, can, I think I might have that one open here. Or I can turn to it. Romans 15.4 says this. For whatever was written in former days, so this is the New Testament, he's speaking of 
the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So here, the Apostle Paul is saying that the, the scriptures were given to us, the Old Testament scriptures were given to us for our instruction, that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now that goes on to include the New Testament scripture. So we can go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's turn there real quick. Pretty common scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 16 says this. And how from, I'm going to start in 14. But as for you, Paul writing to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So here we see that God gave us scripture, the Old Testament scripture and the New Testament scripture, to reveal to us what we can't know without them. So you can't know by um, natural law or inward, or inward uh, moral law. You can't know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, fulfillment, fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies, and he lived perfect life, died a substitutionary death. Um, we, we can't know um, God's will for our lives unless we know Holy Scripture. So he says, that makes Holy Scripture to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people now ceased. So, God has given us two books to know him. One, the book of the natural law, creation. We can come to know God in some way through our reason, through natural revelation, through understanding his creation. As you understand creation, you can kind of understand certain aspects of the creator. But no one can come to a salvific knowledge of God. So no one can um, be saved and come into the family of God through natural revelation only. They, they have to understand special revelation. They have to hear the gospel, right? They have to hear the scriptures. How, how is man to be saved? What's the only way man is to be saved? And that knowledge comes through God's self-revelation, self-giving, self-unveiling um, that he gives to us in the Old and the New Testament by special, by special revelation. Mm -hmm. Now, the Westminster Divines finished that section by saying the, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people now ceased. What, any thoughts or questions on that? 
Yeah, I mean, we had talked about it a little bit before we got started here. Um, when I first read this, uh, the question that I wrote down was, like, is the confession or is the or, or were the divines uh, cessationist? Meaning, like, did they believe in the fact that God speaking is not, like, to individuals isn't authoritative anymore in the sense that they can write that, like you said, they can write that down and now call that scripture. Okay, so two separate questions there. Um, they sound like they go together, but they, they kind of, they don't. It just depends on what you mean by cessationists. Most of them, yes, were cessationists, but not in the sense that the Holy Spirit doesn't speak to the heart of believers. They would still say the Holy Spirit, there's an inward illumination from the Holy Spirit, there's an infirm confirmation of the scriptures from the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can direct us, um, but the Holy so so the Holy Spirit still speaks. But this is where we go wrong, not in the same way that He spoke to the prophets, mm -hmm. that He spoke to Moses, that He spoke to the Apostle Paul, where they were under direct um, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they were writing the very words of God, and the Scriptures are inerrant and they're um, infallible. He doesn't speak that way anymore. That's when, that's what they're, they're trying to get at. The revelation of God, and we're going to talk about this in like Article 3, I think, of this first one. It's going to talk about the Apocrypha. Um, when, like when a Christian, quote-unquote, hears from the Lord and takes something from Scripture and writes a book about it, that book is not infallible, mm -hmm. as, the, as the New Testament and the Old Testament is. That book could have sentences that are infallible. They could have paragraphs that are infallible. Could, right? As it as it is in line with the word of God, it would be it would yeah. be infallible. But there could be fallibility in it because we're still sinners and we're still uh, and and so we can't say, thus saith the Lord, I know for certain that God has a word for you, brother. Mm -hmm. um, that is not in line with the word of God. And we can't be like Moses who goes up on the mountain and receives direct revelation, revelation from God and then comes down and says, oh, yeah, I know who we should vote for, for, for you know, the president. Yeah. Right. Um, no, that is God doesn't speak to us in that way anymore. And it's that's the second article is the second article of this confession we'll talk about is the canon is closed. And we'll talk about what that means. But and why we deter why they determined or how we got to determine these 66 books of the Bible are mm -hmm. the word of God and, and other ones are not. So does God still speak to his people? Absolutely. He does, but he, he doesn't speak in the same manner, right? Yeah. In the same manner. So the, the, the words that they used there were the form. So we don't need prophets in the sense of like Isaiah and 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 Malachi and all these because we have Jesus. By giving new revelations. Yes. Yeah. Right. Jesus gave us everything we need. Uh, Second Peter tells us we have everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need for life and godliness is in the scriptures, comes through the scriptures, comes through the revelation of the Son of God. All the other prophets, all the other the Old Testament was all preparing and pointing to the final revelation um, of Jesus, of, of the Son of God that was going to come and show us what God is like and show us the way of, of salvation. So those former ways of God's revealing his will 
to his people now being seized. So now that we have the reality, Jesus Christ, uh, as revealed to us in the word of God, we don't need the shadow. We don't need, well, even the law. We don't need certain things to feel our way and fumble our way forward anymore because we have the substance. Yeah. We know what God looks like. Mm -hmm. We know what God is like because we have Jesus himself. Um, I wanted to go to one other scripture there in 2 Peter 1.19. Um, um, where he says, 2 Peter 1.19 says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is what it means to be uh, under divine inspiration. Carried along, men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We can be illuminated by the Holy Spirit. We can be, quote unquote, I, I would use, we can be under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but the canon is closed. We can't speak as the Apostle Paul spoke or as Isaiah spoke, et cetera, et cetera. So, so the, when it, yeah. Uh, on that, uh, especially when you talked about a second ago, like how somebody can take a, a, a scripture and write a book on it and yeah. they can have a sentence that's infallible or a paragraph that's infallible, that would be like, as it pertains to like a correct exposition or a biblical exposition of whatever text there. Absolutely. And so, but to take a text and say like, okay, well, there's also this this part to it that uh, many people wouldn't consider like a good biblical yeah, exposition. Yeah, so I'll, let me give you an example. Um, there are scriptures that are very clear and then there are scriptures that are less clear, right? Mm -hmm. And when we're building out a systematic theology, we want the scriptures that are clear to help us to interpret the scriptures that are less clear, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to take a scripture that's kind of vague or hard to understand. Um, the New Testament even says some of Paul's writings are real, very difficult yeah. to understand, you know? Um, you don't want to take a scripture that's kind of vague or hard to understand or maybe, and then build a whole doctrine on it. Mm -hmm. right um, comes to mind like praying for the dead or some weird you know you have some weird obscure passage that you all of a sudden you build a doctrine on and then you could get into some weird weird stuff you know start going to the the, the cemetery and start praying for dead folks right yeah um, or even things that are less clear like I'll be honest and say I believe that bapti baptism baptism the reason ba uh, there's so much division in historically in the church over baptism is because it's less clear. It's not perfectly clear as you see in the New Testament believers being baptized and then you have this kind of obscure, not obscure, but not as clear, whole households being baptized. Mm -hmm. It would be like, man, that would have been, I really wish under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke in the book of Acts would have said, and this infant was baptized and this six-year-old was baptized and this, yeah. but it's not that clear. But we can infer from that, just like from the Old Testament, believers' children were circumcised, 
we can infer that those children were in the covenant community in the Old Testament. They're probably in the covenant community in the New Testament. They've never been put out of the covenant community. Hold households are baptized. Okay, therefore, I think we can baptize children. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a biblical argument, but for me, I'm not willing to die on that. If I'm writing about baptizing, baptizing babies... I'm hoping, I'm believing, I'm trusting the Holy Spirit is leading me in my exposition of the scriptures, but I'm not as confident. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm not as confident as I would be on something that's clearly revealed. So like to say, uh, like, there, baptism plays no part in the actual justification of your soul. Like, or at least like there's no salvific meaning to baptism. That would be... More clear or less clear than well, it depends on how you interpret First uh, Peter that says baptism. Um, it, it speaks of baptism. It says it says baptism corresponds to the 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 um, what's it called circumcision and baptism now saves you. I just texted somebody that this morning. I was just talking with somebody this morning about this verse in 1 Peter 3, 2. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. But here it is. He clarifies. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I don't think in 1 Peter 3, 2, he's saying baptism baptism justifies you. Okay, yeah. But you said, is it a salvific issue? That depends on how mm-hmm. you, you know, if you include sanctification in salva- salvation, mm-hmm. which we do in our order, order salutis, our yeah. order of salvation, we can. And hey, I don't want to get too far into baptism because that's coming up in the Westminster Confession of Faith. But, um, so I've written some position papers at Sacred City, God and alcohol and on our sacraments. Those are not divinely inspired. Those are not on the same level as scripture. Those are open for debate and open for disagreement. And I hope that there's some lines in there that are infallible, that are directly in line with scripture. And, um, well, obviously I'm quoting scripture in there, but, um, it's not a guarantee that it is. And so we're always moving forward toward a more biblical system, systematic theology. And as we go through this Westminster confession of faith, we're going to get to some articles that I think we will have some qualms with. I think we'll disagree with. I think we'll say, actually, because they were writing in a specific culture in a specific place, they didn't realize how influenced by their own culture they were, specifically when we get to the civil magistrate and how to relate to the civil magistrate. They were, of course, in, quote-unquote, Christendom. They were under, they were a Christian nation. Mm. And so, and they were at war with kind of, or, you know, struggling with other Christian nations. And, you know, the king was divorcing his wife and wanting to, and leaving the Catholic Church so that he could uh, take another wife, right? And that's why he's creating Anglicanism, the Church of England, and there's all kind of weird stuff wrapped up in that. And so the way they thought of the civil magistrate, their government, is different than the way that we uh, think of the civil magistrate today. And we were, our American founders were formed by, uh, informed by what was going on and Britain and such at the time that this was that this was written. So, so overall, first article, God reveals himself in two ways, and man is without excuse. Man cannot honestly say, 
I don't have enough information. I don't know God because God has given him a moral nature that says there are moral truths in the universe and he must obey them and he's broken them. And so he's condemned before God and he should seek salvation. And God has revealed, second, secondly, specially, special revelation through the scriptures, the only way that mankind can be saved. And that is through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He comes to see Jesus Christ, the perfect revelation of God, as truth and grace incarnate. He repents of his sins. He puts his faith in Jesus Christ. And he trusts the scriptures for um, everything he needs for life and godliness. That's it. Any questions, thoughts as we close down this episode? Hey, man, I'm excited to get into this. Uh, I think it's going to be good been meaning to get through the Westminster Confession as a whole in general, and I've put it off, so I'm excited to get through that and get to talk about it too. Cool. Yeah. Same here. I think I think it's just really good how you've been just breaking it down that just how tr tradition cannot supplement scripture, family cannot supplement scripture, um, just everything that we have learned growing up from our parents cannot supplement scripture, and I just think that's really good just to dive in and to be able to jump uh, through that each week, so it's good. Yeah, that's good, and that's going to come up in later weeks because one of the things Westminster Divines, again, we're doing, and this, for you, for those of you who want to know a little bit of the historical context, this was about 100 years after the Reformation. And so Martin Luther had done his thing, Calvin had done his thing, Zwingli had done his thing, and some of that theology was like the wild, wild west, right? Like they had recovered the gospel. They had recovered the scriptures. They were... Yeah breaking away from Rome and all of the tradition that you spoke of. And now they were saying, Rome can no longer tell us what's true. The scriptures tell us what's true. That's good. And so Rome doesn't have the authority. The scriptures themselves have the authority. And so we can speak up to Rome and speak up to power as long as we are in line with the scriptures. And again, Martin Luther, he had his flaws. He was man. He was a sinner. Uh, Calvin, he had his flaws. He was a sinner. Zwingli, same thing. We all have our flaws and we all are sinners. And these men coming together, um, they had a hundred years to process the teachings of Calvin, the teachings of Zwingli, the teachings of Luther, and to further um, distill the teachings, of the, to the teachings of the Scripture. And mm -hmm. so I, I do think this is one of the, the best, most articulate, most clear, mm -hmm. most, most easily accessible confessions of faith, even though it's written, you know, you got to get used to the language a little bit. Uh, this week we were talking about how the gospel is, uh, I'm going to say it the way they said it, that the gospel is doctrinal in, in our missional community. And there's doctrines that are community, you know, you have to know the doctrines of the gospel. And I kept saying doctrinal, doctrinal, doctrinal. And they're like, why do you say doctrinal? And I'm like, that's the way you say it. And then I had to Google it, and I realized that doctrinal is the way you would say it in the United Kingdom, hmm. and doctrinal is the way Americans say it. But I'm so informed by like Martin Lloyd-Jones, and, and I'm so uh, kind of, I like, I read, and I've listened to these old guys from the UK <laughs> that it is, uh, it's kind of in my, in my blood a little bit. So we're going to be reading the, the old King's English hmm. for the next, uh, the next few months or however long it takes us to get through this. So... Um, you might have a burning in your heart that tells you to follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Your heart sucks. <laughs> follow scripture. Amen. The only way you can know God and God's will for your life is to follow scripture.
Okay. Um, yeah. So that's, that's article one, chapter one. Now, listen, if you guys have any questions on this, uh, you're excited about this series, maybe even you want to pop down. Hey, I am open for you popping down, smoking a cigar, or just sitting here and inhaling secondhand cigar smoke with us. If you want to chop it up and, uh, and work through this confession with us, but Thank you for the time. Again, this is Sacred City Life Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Dean. If you have any questions, you can email me at Pastor Justin. Is it Pastor Justin? Is it Justin Dean? Oh my goodness. I can't even think of my email right now. I think it's uh, Justin Dean at sacredcitychurch.com. You can email me there. I would love to answer them or answer the, uh, try to answer them in future podcasts. Thank you for spending a little bit of time with us today. Hopefully you are edified and... Um, you are stirred to go to Scripture to, to find more about Jesus Christ. Love you guys. I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.